The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in the chapter we read at the beginning, the first in the first book of Samuel, chapter 12, reading again the 12th verse, the 12th verse in the 12th chapter of the first book of Samuel. And when ye saw that Nehesh, the king of the children, of the children of Ammon came against you, ye said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. I don't propose to confine my remarks solely to that verse, because, as you must have observed, this uh, entire chapter really has just one big message in it, and it is to the message of that chapter, perhaps, reaching its climax in this twelfth verse that I want to call your attention. Now we have uh, the account here, the record, of one of those great turning points in the whole story and history of the children of Israel, God's chosen people, if you like, the church, under the Old Testament dispensation. There were many turning points in their history, but there was no more important or vital turning point than this particular one which we are going to deal with. For it is here, as you will see and remember, these children of Israel insisted upon having a king, an earthly king of them, as the other nations of the world had. And uh, therefore, because of this, God addresses these people in a very striking manner through his servant Samuel. And I want to call your attention to this, because as the New Testament often reminds us, these things in the Old Testament were written for our example. They were written for our admonition. That's why it's important for Christian people to remember the Old Testament as well as the New. God's people are one, Old Testament and New. The form in which he deals with them is differed, but the kingdom is one, though there are these two essentially different dispensations. So what we find here is as applicable to the church in general and to us as individual members of the church as it was to these children of Israel at that particular juncture in their long history. Now, you remember the story. God had done marvelous things for these people. He had created them as a nation out of Abraham. And after a while, he'd led them down in a time of famine into Egypt. But there they'd undergone terrible suffering, untold hardships, persecution, trial. But God had delivered them through the hand of his servant Moses, of his brother Aaron. And he'd granted them a very great deliverance, and then he'd brought them under the hand of Joshua into the chosen promised land of Canaan, in a miraculous and marvelous manner. And after that, they had settled down in their country. There had been problems, but he'd raised up judges for them, who had granted them deliverance. And then after the time of the judges, he had raised up this remarkable man, Samuel, this great prophet, this great statesman, this great leader, one of the greatest that the children of Israel ever had. And these men between them had led them on. But now they've reached a stage in which they've got many problems, many difficulties on all sides and on many hands. And here they are face to face with these. The great days, as it were, had gone. Those spectacular days had gone. And they're now just facing the humdrum problem of daily life and living. 
They are in the land, but there are problems and difficulties there. They reach this kind of second stage. And it is as they find themselves face to face with this that they make this terrible blunder. They go so sadly astray. And that is the essence of the story that we are considering together. Now, this is something that is true, I think you'll all agree, about all of us in the Christian life. There are phases. There are stages. You may come into the Christian life in a very dramatic manner, in a very spectacular manner. But inevitably, you will come to a stage when that will have gone, as it were. And you'll just find yourself fighting the fight of the faith, battling daily. Problems and difficulties and perplexities, temptations and trials. Everything seems to be conspiring against you. Now, here is one of the most critical periods in the life of the individual Christian and in the life of the Christian church. As I say, all this is as true of the corporate life of the church as it is the life of the individual Christian. If you take church history, you will find that the second and the third centuries proved to be two of the most momentous centuries in the long history of the church. The first great century had gone, and then they were in this second stage, this second period, as it were, just having to work it out, day in, day out, with difficulties, trials, and oppositions, and persecutions. And there is no more difficult period in the life of the Christian whether individually or corporately, than just this stage which I'm describing. And the great question is, how do we face that stage and condition? Nothing will have such a serious and momentous effect upon our whole course as just this. Well, now, the whole tragedy of the children of Israel was that they faced it in the wrong way. And this led to... Consequences. Those of you who remember and are familiar with the history will know exactly that to which I'm referring. So many of the problems that came later to these people came as the direct result of this fatal error, this great mistake which they made just at this point. And that is why it is such an important lesson for us all. There are certain principles taught here which are as applicable today, as I say, for the individual or for the church in general, as they were at that time. Now then, I say these people went wrong. In what respects did they go wrong? Well, it's all here before us in this one chapter. The first thing was that their spirit was wrong. Their whole attitude was wrong. They said, a king shall reign over us. When ye saw that Nehesh, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, he said unto me, nay, but a king shall reign over us. There was a kind of insistence. You've already got the same thing in an earlier chapter, chapter 8 and in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. The servant of God, the prophet, had remonstrated with them and had pointed out to them what they were doing, but they wouldn't listen. They insisted upon having this king over them. In other words, what they began to do at this point was to assert their own ideas, their own desires. They brush aside the teaching with which they'd been brought up, and they say, we will have, we must have, we are going to have. Now here is some, always something which is very fatal. The first thing we should realize in this life is that it's a life that in a sense doesn't belong to us at all. 
and our desires and our inclinations and our ideas must never be thrust forward. This kind of aggressiveness, whether in us as individuals or collectively, is always something that leads to disastrous consequences. It is indeed the spirit of rebellion. Man asserting himself and his view of things over and against the plain, clear teaching of God in his own word. And, of course, this is accompanied by self-confidence. They were quite uh, satisfied in their own minds that this was the right and the best thing for them to do. Here were the problems. Nehesh, this king of Ammon, comes against them. Others had come against them before. And they talk about this together. And they say, now, there's only one way in which we can face these kings. We must have a king ourselves. This is the way to solve the problem. They take the whole thing into their own hands. And in a spirit of assurance and of self-confidence, because of their ability and knowledge and their assessment of the circumstances, they are quite convinced and are sure indeed, over and against the servant of the Lord, that this is the way to proceed, and they insist upon having it. Now, that's the spirit of rebellion. And the church of God has often suffered because of this. And perhaps this is the thing that is uppermost, obviously, in the life of the Christian church at the present time. This curious confidence still that we can deal with our problems and with the situation. We've imbibed so much of this fatal self-confidence of men in the 20th century, even in the realm of the church, that we are confident that we really can understand and deal with the situation. That is the first fatal thing. But it isn't the only thing. That, you see, expresses itself like this. They wanted something new. They wanted something different. All their story, as I've told you, had been in terms of their being led by God. They hadn't had a king. They were a nation, but they didn't have a king. But they've got tired of it. Feel that this is no longer adequate. And they want to change. They want something new. I needn't stay with these things. They must be clear and obvious to all of us. This spirit of rebellion generally expresses itself in this way. We're always being told of the need of something new, new methods, new something or other. But times have changed. Things are different. And this was the thing that these people showed at this point. They were often doing this. Nothing is so tragic about the long story of the children of Israel as the way in which they get tired of God's greatest blessings. You remember how we are told that after they'd been eating the manna for some time, they got tired of that, they said. Are we to go on eating this manna forever? Now, manna, you see, was something miraculous. They said, oh, that we could have again the flesh pots of Egypt. And they talked about the garlic and the onions of Egypt and the flesh pots. They said, it's nothing but this perpetual manna day after day. They were sick and tired of the manna. They wanted something new, some fresh excitement, some, some new thrill. Here it is, you see, this is the spirit, and it always leads to this restlessness that doesn't appreciate what God is doing, but always wants something new, something different. Of course, it's characteristic always of children, and the children of Israel so constantly did behave as sheer children in this way and manner. Uh, but not only do they want something new, this is the most pathetic thing about them, they want to be like others. 
You see, the other nations had their kings. So they want a king. They said, why should we be different? Why shouldn't we be like every other nation? Other nations are led to battle by their kings, but we haven't got a king. They felt that they'd got a grievance. They felt that God was being unfair to them. That somehow they were being deprived of what was the lot and the portion of all these other nations. So they said, we, we want to be like the others. We are, after all, a nation like other nations. Why shouldn't we be like them in every respect, and especially in this respect? Now, again, you see, this is something that had already come out, and we get this in the 8th chapter once more in the 5th verse. They said unto Samuel, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. That was the thing that they desired. They wanted to fight their battles and to meet their problems in the same way as the other nations met similar and like problems. You see the application? This is something that has always been fatal in the history of the church. Whenever the church has argued like this, she has always brought disaster down upon herself. And I'm suggesting this morning that the whole condition of the Christian church at this moment is entirely due to a repetition of this very thing that was done by these children of Israel. This has been the essence of the trouble for the last 100 years. The church has been anxious to do things in the way that the world has been doing. You see, there are the enemies attacking. Take last century. Science began to come in. Darwin and so on. Materialism. All these other things. And the church was confronted by a problem. That's the, that's the point always at which you start. Here is the problem. What can the church do about this? Now they had to face that problem a hundred years ago, as we are having to face the problem at the present time. And this has been the fatal blunder of the Christian church. The church has said, now the only way to face this is uh, to meet the world at its own level. The world has become learned. Well, the church must become learned. We must have a learned ministry. So, instead of asking whether a man who was offering himself for the ministry was truly born again and filled with the Spirit, they said, what are his degrees? What is his culture? What's his learning? What's his natural ability? What's his scholarship? You see, it's, it's a repetition of this same thing. There's the world. Very well, that's what everybody else is doing. So the church must do the same thing. The church wants to do things in the way that the world is already doing it. It's like clothing David in Saul's armor. This, was, this is the way. Now there's one illustration of what I mean. And of course it is as obvious and as evident today as it has ever been. We are being told that the modern educated men in this scientific age, he cannot possibly believe in the supernatural. He can't believe in the miraculous. So we mustn't try to do that. We've got to change what we've got. We've got to eliminate things out of the scripture. We've got to meet this man as he is. He won't, he won't take that sort of thing. That's not the way to deal with him. So we have to jettison what has been done throughout the centuries. And we have to meet the modern men with new weapons and in a new way. We've got to fight this battle with our human knowledge and learning and understanding. And so we're going to win them. We have new translations of the Bible. We'll do anything 
in order to get at the motive, I'm not querying the motive, the motive is quite sincere, it's perfectly honest. All I'm trying to show you is that the method adopted is the method of the world itself. It is a departure from an old method, a well-tried method, and it is an adoption of a method that belongs essentially to worldly thinking, not to spiritual, not to scriptural thinking. And you get it, of course, not only in that respect, but also with regard to evangelism. Salesmanship is the great word. We must please people. We must attract them. We must interest them. We must make it enticing for them. We must introduce elements of psychology. See, this is the essence of salesmanship. Good salesmanship today demands a knowledge of psychology, we are told. And so salesmen are sent on psychological courses. You've got to understand your customer. You've got to understand the mentality and the outlook. Well, the church must do the same. So the church borrows its methods from the world and from business. And thus we say we are going to win the modern men to the Christian church and to the Christian faith. And it's been done with great assiduity. But haven't we reached the point when it's time that we ask, does all this even succeed? I'm not only asking, is it right? I'm asking even, does it succeed? Now, but this applies not only to the church in general. It is equally true about us as individuals. There is an increasing tendency for individuals, it seems to me, to turn to worldly methods. There's more and more talk about the use of psychology amongst Christian people. And candidates, even for the foreign mission work, are vetted by psychologists. This is the whole trend and tendency today. We are viewing problems in a way that is an entire departure from that which once obtained. And we do it in our own individual lives and with our personal problems in exactly the same way. Now, that is what they did. But the great question for us to consider is this. Why did they behave like this? What was it that suddenly possessed these children of Israel to insist upon having a, an earthly king? Here's the great matter that is dealt with. This is so important that God gives a message to Samuel to deliver to these children of Israel. And he begins giving it in the sixth verse. And Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord which he did to you and to your fathers. When Jacob was come into Egypt, and your fathers cried unto the Lord, then the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. And when they forget the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Sisera, captain of the host of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and so on. And they cried unto the Lord, and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord, and have served Baalim and Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, and we will serve. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal, and Bedan, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and he dwelled safely. What was the matter with these children of Israel? Oh, the answer was this. They had forgotten their history. And my dear friends, if there's any one trouble from which we are suffering more than anything else at the present time, it is that we have forgotten our history. The Christian church has forgotten her own history. This was perpetually the trouble with these people. We read in the second book of Judges, in the tenth verse, Another generation arose after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. 
This is the tragedy. Forgetting the history. You see, we always start with ourselves and with things as they are and with our modern problems. As if there were nothing behind us. And we start from where we are and then we have to bring in our earthly human wisdom and our own methods and ideas and we think we are doing wonders. The whole trouble with us is we don't know the history. These children of Israel were perpetually forgetting their own origin. They were forgetting the way in which they'd ever come into being. They were forgetting who they were. They were forgetting all about how God had raised up Moses and Aaron and delivered them from the tyranny of Egypt, divided the Red Sea, led them through the wilderness, divided Jordan, raised up these men, and every time they were conquered and they went back, he delivered them again. It was always God. Beginning and continuance, it is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron and that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, there is nothing which is more fatal, I say, for an individual Christian or for the Christian church than to forget this history. What is the Christian church? That's the question to ask. You don't just start with your modern problems and try to improvise. You start by saying, what is the church? How did the church begin? What's her origin? What's her beginning? What's the explanation? How has she continued until this day? And the moment you ask that question, you come to this inevitable answer. It is always the Lord. These people have never been in existence but for God. They're not a nation like other nations. It's the Lord who's done everything. They are his own peculiar creation, his own peculiar possession. And so, you see, Samuel rehearses their history with them. And he reminds them, and we need to be reminded of all this history in exactly the same way. He goes back. Remember, he says, this is what has happened. This is what has happened. Here you are near her. She's attacking you now. And you say, we must have a king. It's the only way. Go back, he says, read your history. It isn't the first time you've been attacked. How have you overcome your enemies in the past? They've forgotten all this. And I say that this is the whole tragedy with the Christian church at the present time. We are so enamored of our modern knowledge. We are so boastful of our 20th century that we persuade ourselves that our problems are new problems, that this kind of problem has never been confronted before. We've so been influenced by the mind and the thinking of the world that's round and about us, and we've so forgotten the history, the background of the Christian church that we are falling into this same fallacy in this our day and generation. What is the Christian church? She isn't an ordinary society. What is the kingdom of God? It's entirely different from every other kingdom. That's what these people didn't realize. It is the Lord. What's the story of the church? The story of the church is all that we read in the Old Testament of the acts of God. Then you come to the New Testament. This is the story of the church. When the fullness of the times was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. When the world was hopeless, when all the civilizations of Greece and of Rome and all others had failed completely, God did something. Unexpected, miraculous, supernatural, something that cannot be understood. God did it. And all that you have concerning our blessed Lord and Savior in your four Gospels. It's miracle. 
It's not human, it's not ordinary, it's supernatural, it is miraculous, it is divine. But we've forgotten this. The world is, the church is speaking today as if she were just an institution amongst others and using her cleverness and her ingenuity, she's forgotten her history. And not only what you get in the pages of the four gospels. Take the church as we know her. The church, if you like, even in an in institutional sense. How did the church ever come into being? Is it the result of the study and the learning and the culture of a number of outstanding scholars? Well, you know the answer. It's nothing of the sort. Ignorant and unlettered men, fishermen and others, men who in a sense knew nothing. They are the apostles. These are the leaders. Well, how are they unable to lead? They're unable to lead because of Pentecost. Because they were baptized with the Holy Ghost. The Lord did something to them. He gave them understanding, ability, wisdom, power, authority, gift of speech, everything that they needed. It is the Lord. You can't understand the church. And yet, you see, the church doesn't reason like that now, does she? She does the exact opposite. She's reasoning in this human way. But you can't begin to understand the story of the Christian church, except you know the whole story of Pentecost. The great endowment with power. These helpless men, these hopeless men in a sense, with nothing to recommend them. God takes them. It is the Lord all along who is doing it. Well, they keep on saying it. You remember Peter and John having healed that man at the beautiful gate of the temple. They are very careful to point out at once. It isn't we, not our power, not godliness that have done this thing. It is his name, through faith in his name, that hath given this man this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. History, this is the thing that matters. It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron. It is the Lord who has begun the Christian church. And not only that, it is the Lord who's kept her going. Samuel reviews the history. How though it all had started like this with Moses and Aaron, they had fallen into sin and had become rebellious. And as the result of that, they got into trouble. And in their hopeless trouble, the cowards that they were, they turned to God and asked him to deliver them. And he did it. He did it every time. They cried unto the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have seeken the Lord and have served Berlin. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Bedan and Jephthah and Samuel. He did it every time when they cried unto him. He kept them going. He sent power again upon them and they were able to conquer their enemies. That's exactly what he's been doing in the long history of the Christian church. The church which starts in Pentecost, after a while, begins to wane and to lose her power. And she's helpless. And the enemy seems to be conquering and she looks as if she's going to be destroyed finally and completely. And then they cried to the Lord and God heard them and answered them. What's, what am I talking about? I'm talking about revivals. The Christian church is still in existence because of revivals. What are revivals? Revivals are repetitions of Pentecost. Revivals are God again sending down the power and delivering the church when she's been utterly, utterly effete and helpless and moribund, practically finished. God has kept it going. That's the history. But how much do we hear of that sort of history at the present time? No, no. What we are talking about is human wisdom and understanding. We are going to deal with the modern situation. We are going to have a new gospel. We are eliminating the miraculous out of the scriptures. We are going to organize it. We are going to do it. 
And it's all due to the fact that people don't know their history. Christian people, next to the Bible, the most important thing for you to read is church history. You'll find most of the problems of the church in general and your individual problems are due to the fact that you don't know your history. You don't know the facts. Take it in your own case. You're confronted by problems this morning. And you're tempted to turn to this expedient or to that. You're tempted to turn to something that men can produce to help you. Why are you doing that? It's because you've forgotten that what's made you a Christian is regeneration. The miraculous act of God. You're born of the Spirit. A Christian is not a man who decides to take up Christianity or religion. No, no. He is made. It's supernatural. It's God's act. It is the Lord who has made you what you are. Very well. Here's your beginning. Here's your origin. And it must be the explanation of the remainder of your story. Well, now there is the first thing. The failure to remember the history. Oh, my dear friends, this is so important that I stop again just to ask the question. Do you know the story of the Christian church? Or do you just know about contemporary Christianity? Do you realize what happened at Pentecost? Do you know the great story of the revivals, the mighty outpourings of the Spirit of God? And as you think of your modern problems and look at them, do you always do it in the background of this great history? Or are you just starting the modern position and trying to evolve some scheme or some method? Let's learn the lesson from these people. Nothing is more fatal than to forget your history. But still worse. They fail to realize their uniqueness. There's something tremendous to me about this 12th verse. And when he saw that Nash, the king of the children of Ammon, came against you, he said unto me, Nay, but a king shall reign over us. Then listen. When the Lord your God was your king. Oh, that I had power to say that as Samuel undoubtedly said it. You know, he said... You said we will have a king when the Lord himself was already your king. What a tragic people these were. But this is still true also, isn't it? The Lord was their king. But they didn't realize this. It meant nothing to them. As I say, they even thought they'd got a grievance. Fancy leaving us without a king, this why did they say that? They didn't realize that the Lord himself was their king. They were a unique people. They had the highest privilege a people could ever have. The very God of heaven was their king. He was their ruler. He was their leader. He was their guide. He was the captain of their forces. He was everything to them. But they didn't realize it. And so they coveted what the other godless nations round and about them had. Now, my dear friends, apply this for yourselves. Apply it to the church. Apply it to yourself as an individual Christian. Surely the great trouble, the greatest trouble with all of us at the present time is that we are failing to realize our privileges as Christians. Are you grumbling and complaining as a Christian? Do you feel you're having a hard time? Do you sometimes feel envious of those who are not Christians because of the things they can go and do on Sunday or some other days? And do you feel that you're really being badly treated because you're a Christian? 
Well, if, you, if, if that is so, you're in exactly the position of these children of Israel, and it's all due to the fact that you don't realize the privileges that are yours. What are they? Well, let me put it like this. Look at this tragic tendency at the present time to look back in the direction of Rome. What do we want? Well, we want to go back to priests, and we want to go back to those who can mediate for us. We want to go back to a church that offers to do it for us. We want to go back to men and human institutions that will mediate between us and God. Why do people do that? Why is there this new climate of opinion in Protestantism which is looking favorably, after all, upon Rome and what it does? There's only one explanation. It is that they have forgotten that there is one and only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Why do they want to go back to men? Because they don't realize the privilege of having Jesus, the Son of God, as their great high priest. We've got the Son of God as our mediator. We don't need anybody else. He doesn't need any assistance. The very Son of God has been made our great high priest. We don't seem to realize that. We seem to have forgotten it. We seem to fail to realize the greatness of our privileges. We don't realize likewise that we are sons and daughters, children of the living God. What is there that's comparable to this? Are you seeking something that the world can give you? Do you feel you've made a great sacrifice to become a Christian? Shame on you. There's no sacrifice in the Christian life. It is all gain. It is all glory. It is all privilege. It is all honor. Let the world deride or pity I will glory in his name to be a child of God, to be a son of God. There's nothing in the whole universe comparable to this. Desiring an earthly king when the Lord of heaven is my king? The thing is monstrous. There's something radically wrong with us. Where's our thinking got to? Well, here are some of the privileges. And because we are children of God, we've got direct access to God. You may be burdened, you may be facing grievous problems this morning, but are you frantic? Are you turning around looking for something and for help, and are you looking to the world to see if that can help you? My friend, you've got direct access to the God of heaven. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and have access to this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Having boldness, therefore, to enter into the holiest of all by the blood of Jesus. You as a Christian feeling that you've been deprived of something, that you're lacking something, Man alive, I say, the gateway of heaven is open to you. You've got a direct access. You can have an audience with the king of kings. The way is free at any moment. There it is awaiting you. Shame on us Christian people for our failure to realize our high privileges as the children of God. He's not ashamed to be called our God. And Christ is not ashamed to be called our brother. And don't we realize that he is able to provide everything we stand in need of? He has all ability and power. The Son himself said that before he left this world. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. 
everything you stand in need of. Listen to these magnificent statements. This is why the church is as she is, and holding our conferences and trying to construct a new gospel and wondering what can be done. Do you know what it's due to? Here it is, Paul has said it all to the Ephesians. He's praying for these men, that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened. What for? That they may know what is the hope of his calling, what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints is, and this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us with that believe? According to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this world but also in that which is to come and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him that filleth all in all that's what he is that's our position and yet we are seeking anxiously for methods from the world in order to deal with our problems what a tragedy or again in Ephesians 3 now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. And to him be glory in the church by, according to the power that worketh in us. And to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. My dear people, if you're in trouble and if you're frightened and alarmed and wondering whether Christianity can satisfy all your needs, I say go back and read your scriptures. Familiarize yourself with the history. Realize where God has put you, what you are, your privileges at this moment, and the illimitable resources of the everlasting God that are available to you. And having read your scriptures, go again and read your church history. Remember that God is the God of our fathers. And what he did for the fathers he can do for us. He's the God of revivals. Let's remind ourselves, let's tell the whole church that if God arises he can do more in a second than 50 years of all our scholarship and learning and organizations put together. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you know that this God when he does arise can scatter all his enemies? Read your Old Testament. Read about Moses and Aaron. Read about the Red Sea again. Read about the dividing of Jordan. Read his exploits. Read what our Lord did. Read about Pentecost. Read the revivals of history. My dear friends, it's ignorance of these things and our failure to realize that God can still do all this that accounts for our paralysis and for our helplessness. Failure to realize our great privilege. But they forgot another thing also. And that was the power of God. And Samuel reminds them of it. It's a terrible thing, you know, to be playing with God's laws and God's rules. When they forget the Lord their God, he sold them into the hand of Caesar. And you remember how the chapter ends. This is magnificent. If you shall still do wickedly, you shall be consumed, both you and your king, the one in whom you're trusting. You shall be consumed. God can create and God can destroy. God is not only the God of blessing, but he's the God of cursing. Look at these foolish people, putting God's way on one side. Why do they do it? Because of their ignorance of God. God is just and righteous and holy. God will always punish rebellion and disobedience in his own people as well as everybody else. 
If you are fighting with or trifling with God's way, you be prepared for what's coming to you. They were ignorant of this, so they're reminded of the story. Though they were God's people, when they rebelled, they were punished. Every time, without exception. And you remember what happened in AD 70? These people of God, they were thrown out of Jerusalem. They've been suffering ever since. Well, now then, what is the message that comes to people in this condition? I'm only going to give you some headings. It's all here. The first thing is a word of warning. And we need the word of warning. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall both you and also your king that reigneth over you continue following the Lord your God. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then shall the hand of the Lord be against you, as it was against your fathers. And I don't hesitate to assert this morning that the hand of the Lord is against the organized Christian church at this present time. He's not only not blessing, his hand is against. Why? Because they put him on one side and are using their own ability and understanding. It's the sole explanation of the present state and condition. God forbid that it should be true of any one of us as an individual. The warning. But then the second thing. We need to be reminded of God's power. Did you notice this thing? Verses 16 to 18. Now therefore stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call unto the Lord, and he shall send thunder and rain, that he may perceive and see that your wickedness is great, which ye have done in the sight of the Lord in asking you a king. So Samuel called unto the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. If you were to ask me what, in my opinion, is the greatest need of the Christian church at large today and the individual Christian without a moment's hesitation, this would be my reply. Our greatest need is to know the fear of the Lord. We are too healthy, my friends. We are too light-hearted. We are too glib. We are too slick. We are too easy. We even talk about God in a way that is unworthy. Our greatest need is the need to be humbled. We need to know something of the terror of the Lord. The Apostle Paul knew it. Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. How healthy we are. What do we know about the fear of the Lord? What do we know of God's almighty power and glory? Here you see it happened in this way. Thunder and lightning. The manifestation of the power of God. Do you know what happens in every revival? The first effect of a revival always is to humble the people of God. To fill them with fear. To make them feel they've never been Christian, many of them. To make them realize their own sinfulness. These people who are so self-satisfied, who come to Sunday evening sermons sometimes and say they spend their time there praying for the unconverted. No message for them, they're all right. Always concerned about the outsider. My dear friend, the trouble is with you and with me. Do you know the fear of the Lord? Do you tread softly in his presence? Are you afraid of grieving him? We need to be humble. We need to be abased. 
We need to be filled with reverence and with godly fear. This is the teaching of the whole Bible. The men of God have always been men who have feared the Lord in a right and in a true sense. So that is the second great message. And then the emphasis, of course, is upon true repentance. Samuel said unto the people, Fear not. You have done all this wickedness, yet turn not aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And turn ye not aside, for then ye should go after vain things which cannot profit for deliver you, for they are vain. Repentance, which means a whole heart, keeping nothing back, an entire surrender to God, with all your heart. That's what he demands. And that includes turning away from everything else which is vanity, which is idle. Trusting in your kings, trusting in your learning, your scholarship, your organizations, your pomp and power, your money, and all your enticing attractions. Turn away from their vanity and will in the end lead to nothing at all. Turn from them and turn to God with a whole and an entire heart. And if you do so, his promise to us, blessed be his name, is still the same, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it hath pleased the Lord to make you his people. My dear Christian friend, examine yourself. And if you find anything of this spirit and outlook of the children of Israel of old in yourself, go back to him and acknowledge it and confess it. Let the whole church do so. Let the church of God do so everywhere. Let us admit and confess our folly, our foolish human reliance, human assertion of our opinions. Let's remind ourselves of the past, the history, the glory, and remember that God is still the same. Though we've grieved him, though we've offended him, if we truly repent with a whole heart and turn again to him, he'll not forsake us. Blessed be the name of God. He's ever ready to heal our backslidings. He's ever ready to renew the covenant. He's ever ready to give us a new and a fresh start. Let's take him at his word and believe that for his own glorious name's sake, he'll not abandon us, but he will only bless us on condition that we do things in his way and not in our 